gears now. We're going to get into um, the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about what we're doing right now, so then we'll jump in. Um, we finished the book of Revelation um, a couple weeks ago, or last week I should say. I'm not even sure where I'm at. We finished it last week is what we did, and we're done with the book of Revelation. We're starting a brand new series now for the summer. We're going to be going through the uh, 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're going to be spending about 12 weeks in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing with regard to this, and we've been trying to emphasize about this chapter, is it's really a chapter that's about God and the greatness of God. And oftentimes, uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 in particular, can oftentimes be distinguished or identified as like the hall of faith. Um, I'm going to purposefully not call it the hall of faith. And the reason for that is because oftentimes that gets associated with this uh, bigger concept of the hall of fame. And that causes us to think of... People being extraordinary people. These are like the best of the best. This is like the A team. These are varsity, not JV, like you and I. These are a varsity team. These are the best people on campus. In reality, that's just not the case. That's not what chapter 11 is about. It's not to somehow um, case and showcase these people and point them out as being somehow extraordinary or great or just superhuman type beings that have some sort of great thing in which we're to sort of bow down before them and recognize their greatness. That's not the point of Hebrews chapter 11. It's actually meant to point out how great God is. So great in that he actually uses common people like those that will be identified in chapter 11. In other words, uh, if, if you look at it this way, those that are identified in chapter 11 really aren't, I mean, some of them did great things, but they did great things simply because God is a great God. That's really important to note that. And the reason why that's important to note that, the reason why I want to put the emphasis on that, that God's a great God, and not so much that these are great people, is because, personally, I can identify with that a whole lot better. In other words, if this chapter was about how great Abraham was, in other words, he's such a great guy, he so trusted God, he never wavered in his faith, he never doubted, never wavered from the left to the right, he always stayed on track, never sinned, was always like impeccable in his actions, attitudes, thinking, mindset, everything about him. He was just the epitome of greatness. I can't relate to that. I have to just look at that and just be like, close the book, I'm very discouraged, I want to go home. Right, it's just, it's, it, it does not in any way point my eyes to Jesus, it does not in any way cause me to think I can do this. But the reality is, if on the contrary, if these are just regular, common people who trust, put confidence in a great God, now I can look at them and say, I, I'm, I'm common. I'm nothing great. I, I know I fail. I've got sin in my own heart. I've got things that I oftentimes am very embarrassed about and things I don't want to identify or things I don't want to be pointed out about me. I know who I am. I know where I'm at. You hopefully know who you are in some of the sin that you struggle with. In the reality, if it's just common people, normal people, ordinary people trusting in an extraordinary God and an uncommon God, man, now we're talking. Now, this is something we can look at and catches our attention. We're like, this is us. This is where we're at. This is the same wavelength where we're at. I can identify with these losers. They're not the Hall of Fame they're, in a lot of ways, just regular common people that God uses to do great things because he is a great God. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at. Um, over the next several weeks, uh, the, write, the writer of Hebrews actually writes in such a way in that he already anticipates that his audience knows something about the people to whom he's writing. 
and that they know something about what he's writing about. In other words, the actual book is called Hebrews, which is a clue to whom the audience is. The audience, obviously, are Jews. So these people are familiar with guys like Moses and Noah and Rahab and Sarah. They're, they're familiar with these people. So for us, a lot of times, we're not that familiar. And I don't want to assume just because, you know, maybe your church or you've been a Christian for a whole whopping three months or whatever, that you somehow have some sort of exhaustive understanding of who the people are that he's going to be referring to. So that's one of the reasons why it's going to be taking us 12 weeks to go through this whole chapter. It's because each major player that's going to be in the chapter, we're going to take a week to try to understand their story, to understand who they are. I'll give you an example. All right? One of the elements or one of the men that's going to be identified is Noah. Now, oftentimes, especially in our culture, when we think of Noah, we think of flannel boards and nice little giraffes. Right, sweet little sheep. In fact, we're, we're so Christianized that we make silly little pajamas with a little sheep and a little boat, and everything's just kind of nice with the sun, and there's like a nice little dove flying around. And when your kids are getting into bed, you're like, Mom, you know what? Why, why is there a lamb on the boat, on my pajamas? Well, see, sweetheart, it's because 100 million animals are going to be slaughtered in just a few short moments. Everybody will die on the planet, and it'll be horrific. I mean, I mean, the reality is, we, we don't want to be honest with that type of stuff. It's a horrific story. Uh, it's a story that's really about a lot of massive judgment, and yet, it's, God uses this guy like Noah, who's just a common guy. He builds a boat 500 miles inland. It's never rained before. He builds not just a boat, it's called an ark, which is essentially nothing more than a big barge, and that's about it. And he brings all the animals he can muster into that ark. Because massive judgment is going to happen. And so we're going to look at stories of each of these people and try to decompress them and unpackage them, but not just so much as an end in of themselves looking at these guys as you know, who they are, but really ultimately, ultimately looking at them in light of how great, how big, how mighty is their God. And how God calls them and challenges them to do things that just seem absurd. Absolutely seem absurd. To build a barge 500 miles in the desert from the beach, absurd. To leave your homeland and you have absolutely no idea where you're going, absurd. To be 90 years old and expect to have a baby, absurd. To be driven as a nation out to the edge of the ocean and be surrounded on either side by mountains and the army of Pharaoh behind you, nothing more than this Red Sea in front of you, and expect somehow to survive, absolutely absurd. But here's what God does. He's such a great God, he takes absurd circumstances, and he makes a way for those who have confidence and trust in him. That's what Hebrews, Hebrews 11 is about. It's about common, normal, everyday people, just like you and I, who've trusted God. That's it. I'm going to pray. We've got a lot of stuff we're going to look at here this morning, and then we'll get to work. Sound good? Father, we ask you right now that you would just help us. We need your strength. God, we want more than anything else this morning to just have our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our ears attuned to Jesus. To hear you, to see you. God, to have the eyes of our understanding enlightened so that we would get a bigger, bigger, better glimpse of who you are so that we could trust you. God, we want the purpose the objective of what we're doing here this morning to be ultimately trust and confidence, greater trust, greater confidence 
in your faithfulness. So we pray for your help this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's what I want to do. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to start kind of moving through this. Those are the verses that we're going to be looking at next week. Next week we'll take a look at verse 4. And we'll take a look at specifically uh, Abel. But right now, jump in. 1 through 3, it says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was made out of what is, or I'm sorry, what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And that's it. That's what we're going to finish on right there. But what I want to do before we jump in, the first thing that we're going to be taking a look at is really I want to emphasize the fact that faith is something. It actually is something. It's not just sort of ambiguous. It's not something that just... Uh, that is sort of ghostly, we don't know, it's undefinable, it is actually something, but before we jump in and look at that, I want to notice a couple things of what it's not, all right, faith is not sentimentalism, it's not just simply feeling something, oftentimes faith in our sort of postmodern culture tends to be reduced to how you feel, subjectivity, how you feel about something is oftentimes attributed to faith, like I believe in God because I feel God. It's not just that. It may uh, have, to some degree, some element of emotion attached to it, meaning if you believe in God and trust God, you may sometimes feel very near God and feel good. Sometimes, at the same time, flip side of that coin is you also may feel very far from God. So it's more than feeling. It's not simply sentimentalism. It's not um, faith in faith. In other words, kind of like the way it's been distorted to some degrees in sort of some of the uh, health and wealth type prosperity doctrines, where if you have faith and confidence in faith, then you can actually, like God, create things out of nothing like God. It's not faith or confidence in faith. It's not what it's talking about. Nor is it blind faith. We're not talking about just taking a leap in darkness and trying to just hope that something is there to sustain us. It's not just blind faith, blind leap in darkness. Nor is it mindless or brainless. Oftentimes, Christians can be accused of being uh, mindless or brainless when it comes to Christian belief and doctrine and concept. In other words, you oftentimes hear sometimes people make arguments that Christianity is about just checking your brains in at the door. You go in and you feel good. You go home and you just keep trying to live off of this high. That's about it. It's not mindless. Faith is actually intelligent. It's actually built upon, based upon Evidence. That's what we're going to find out in a second here. It's actually something that we can believe in. So the first thing I want to try to do is understand verse 1. And again, trying to establish this concept that faith is something. Last thing I want to say before we read verse 1 is this. Um, faith is also multidimensional. Here's what I mean. One of the things that you'll find uh, throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uh, you'll find writers like Paul the Apostle. He writes about having confidence in the death of Christ. Is that past, present, or future for us? Right? What was that? Past, present, or future for us? Past, right? All right. Audience participation time. Um, past. Exactly. It's past. So in some ways, faith is past tense. We have confidence or faith in something that has happened. Faith also is future. There's also a dimensional element of the future of faith. We just finished the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, the book of Revelation is what we last looked at. 
And it talks about there will, become a, there will come a day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Is that future? Absolutely. Has not yet happened. We're not living in a new heavens and a new earth where wolf lay down with sheep. We, we know that. We know we don't live in that world because anytime you put a sheep next to a wolf, you have to keep replacing the sheep. That's the world we live in. It, it, I mean, you can make it happen, but you've got to keep replacing it. The point that I would make is this, is that faith and confidence in that future world is, yeah, future, like I said. So there is an element where it's past, there's an element where it's future, but there's also an element where it's present, where we live out the, in the present elements of the past, trusting what Christ has done for us in the past, also elements of the future, trusting God of what God will do in the future, and we bring those together, sort of inclusion, into the day and the age and the life in which we live today. We live according to that. We walk according to that here and now, presently. It helps us to live in the present. For example, all right, if you're somebody that struggles with guilt, you're a Christian. The way you practically apply this in your life is you go back to the cross. You remember what Christ did for you on the cross, that he paid for your sin on the cross, so you grab that element of being cleansed from Jesus' blood, Jesus' death on the cross, apply that to the present, but you also go, even to some degrees, borrow some aspects of confidence in the future, and you read passages like Revelation where it says, and I saw this massive group of people, and they were all gathered around the throne, they all wore white robes, meaning they were pure in God's eyes, cleansed in God's eyes. So the point is, practically speaking, the way that you take elements of the past and elements of the future, and you combine them to bring them together in the present, to live in victory, not under condemnation, not under feeling filthy, not under constantly feeling like this horrible, evil, wicked sinner that just has to run and hide all the time. But the way you live that out is by trusting what Christ did in the past, also trusting what Christ did in the future, and bringing it into the present. Make sense? I mean, I can, I can keep going on, because that's really, in reality, what the whole Christian life is. If you read... The uh, epistles, like what Paul writes, that's all Paul's doing. If, if you really want to look at the epistles in a new lens, the best way I can just describe it to you, Paul is writing by putting this lens of confidence over the past and over the future, and he's bringing it into the present. That's why, like for example, just I'll throw out another one, this is a freebie, like Philemon. He's talking about this guy Philemon, this tiny little postcard, it's about it, it's just a handful of verses, it's done. You can't even call it a letter, it's a postcard, all right? Post-it note, that's about all it is. And one of those little yellow ones, and that's it, stuck on his forehead, and he just walks around with that thing. And the point is, basically what Paul's saying is that, listen, don't you know, don't you know that God's forgiven you, he's cleansed you, he's washed you, so therefore, forgive the one who has offended you. You're taking elements of the past, Jesus died, forgave you, elements of the future, that you will be perfected in Christ, and you're living those out in the present. That's the whole Christian life. That's what all the epistles are all about. It's Paul borrowing elements of what God did past and the present, bring in the present. Or past, future, and bring them in the present. That's Christian life. All right, with that being said, um, I want to take a look at a couple other verses, the way um, in other translations to try to understand this. The reason why you might find, if you have a different translation, I'm reading now the ESV, and what I read in verse 1, it says this again it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. I actually love this translation. It's one of my favorites. But to be quite honest with you, I, I, for the life of me, can't figure out what this says. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I've, like, read it ten times. I've 
read through it, pausing, just reading like different phrases. I'm like, this is so difficult to understand. So a lot of times what I try to do is I go to different translations, try to understand what different translations say to help give some other insight. And the problem is, is not with the Bible. The problem is with translation. The English translation, the English language is not as rich and, you know, full as, say, the Greek. And so you'll notice in some of these other translations, there's different variations by which the same text is trying to be conveyed. So here's a couple examples. Uh, NIV says this, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. So where the ESV says uh, faith is assurance, um, NIV says faith is being sure or being certain. Um, The New Living Translation says this, faith is the confidence that what we hope for is actually going to happen. Uh, The message, I'm not the greatest fan of the message, uh, not the greatest enemy of the message, and what it's teaching, what it says, but it says this, faith is a firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. That word firm foundation, I think, is actually very close to the original language. The word assurance, or where it says faith is the assurance. It's a tiny little bit of Greek for you guys. Um, I in no way... You know, no Greek, um, I've just got good Bible software. That's about it. So you're like, wow, he knows Greek. No, I just got good Bible software. Uh, the word uh, that's user assurance is actually the Greek word hupostasis, two words. Hupo means under, uh, stasis, uh, we actually get the English word uh, histamine or antihistamine from. We looked at this several months ago. It's the idea of standing or standing at arms or having great strength and power and authority. Not so much the authority part, but strength and power. And so the idea of hypostasis or standing under is this idea of something that's strong underneath. It's the concept of maybe like rebar or undergirding or a foundation. That's why I think the message does a great job uh, in interpreting that particular word, that faith is a foundation. It's something that undergirds us. It stands underneath us and everything else and gets built upon it. So what I want to say basically to start off here is faith is actually something. It is something. It's something that God uses to build our lives on, our future on, based upon the past, but also the present by which we live this stuff out. Living the gospel out. Living in the present because of the past and because of the assurance of the future. That's what walking by faith is. That's what you'll find in the lives of each of the guys and gals that God points out here in Hebrews chapter 11. They live in the present based upon promises of God in the future or in the past because God's a faithful God, because he's a great God. So with that being said, take a look at another verse that I want to read before we move on to the next point. Um, Again, just looking at the way Jesus sees this, um, there's this great little story in Matthew chapter 8, and Matthew kind of gives us these little vignettes, these little snapshots in Jesus' life where he interacts with people, communicates with them, talks to them, does miracles, teaches. Jesus was sort of an itinerant preacher. He went around for about three years, uh, traveling from you know, little city to city or village to village back in the day. And he just kind of shared the gospel with people, shared with people about the kingdom of God. And on one of his journeys, it says in a, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, it says this, And a centurion came to Jesus, appealing to him. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Uh, and, then he said, and then he said to him, I will come and heal him. But then the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority and the soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does that. 
Verse 10, he says, and then Jesus heard this. He marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So Jesus looks at this guy and it's kind of an interesting story. A centurion was a soldier, but he had the authority over 100 people. Century, century, centurion, the idea of 100. So this guy had authority over 100 people. And as he's dialoguing with Jesus, he's like, Jesus, my, my servant, um, which tells us a little bit about this guy. I mean, he's got a heart big enough to actually care about a servant. I mean, think about that. He's a good guy. I mean, servants are disposable back for a century. But this guy's a good guy. He's caring about a servant. So he comes to Jesus, has confidence in Jesus. He's like, look, my servant is paralyzed. Can you come or can you heal him? Jesus' like, I'll come. Let's go to the house. He's like, no, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Got issues in my life. Um, but, you know, I, I, I believe that you're a great person, great God, great whoever. Again, probably a little bit ambiguous in his mind as to exactly who Jesus was. But he looked at Jesus and thought there's something great and profound about him. Something that can cause me to trust him and have confidence in him. And then Jesus says, look, I, I, I will heal your servant. And then Jesus ends by basically looking at all of his followers that are hanging around with him. And he says, it's truly I tell you. I have not found anybody in all of Israel up to date who's got as much faith as this centurion guy. But there's a pretty good chance, obviously, this guy is not, he's definitely not Jewish. He's probably just a pagan guy, just doing his job, sees Jesus, kind of watching Jesus from a distance, reading the headlines in the newspaper, realizes Jesus is in town, people are getting healed, people's eyes are being opened, he's maybe catching a little bit of some of the messages and the sermons that Jesus is preaching, and thinks, this guy's got the ability to heal my servant. And the point of the matter is he's not religious. He's just a regular, common dude. But he trusts God. He trusts Jesus. And as a result of that, Jesus basically says, it's because of this, I'm going to heal your servant. And he marvels. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, just imagine in your mind. Think of this. Jesus is absolutely stunned. He's like, this is amazing. I mean, I, just, I don't know what the text implies in marvel. But I just get this concept in my mind. Jesus has got this big smile on his face. Maybe shaking his head. He's just like, I can't believe this. Oy vey. I mean, this guy is amazing. He trusts me. Not even Jews trust me. Not even the religious people who are committed to the synagogue trust me the way this common centurion pagan does. It's amazing to me that Jesus just, he's looking for this. It's one of the reasons why um, Romans talks about this. Galatians talks about this. I think Hebrews even hints at it, uh, points out this. It's a verse from the Old Testament the book of Habakkuk. Where basically says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That what God is actually looking for is this element of confidence and trust in him. So with that, let's take a look at the next thing. Faith really is actually connected to hope. Verse 1 again, it says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We looked at the word assurance, this idea of a foundation or something that undergirds. Faith is this undergirding, this foundation of things that are hoped for. Now, when you talk about the word hope, you're actually talking about something that you don't currently have. When you talk about people hoping, and this idea of somebody trusting or looking forward to something or wanting something that they currently don't have, it also carries this connotation, this idea of um, dissatisfaction. You're not fully satisfied in the status where you're at today. I actually pray. I actually pray that some of you would live in a state of 
dissatisfaction. And I don't mean dissatisfied as a grumpy old person who just doesn't get everything you want. What I mean dissatisfied in the way that early Christians were dissatisfied. They wanted something, longed for something more than what they currently had in this world. They longed for God. They longed for a life in which God came. They longed for an existence, a humanity in which God brings heaven to earth. They looked to Jesus. They lived with an expectation, hoping, trusting that one day, even though this world is broken, even though this world is wrong, even though this world is messed up, they hope for a world to come. Just like Abraham. They hoped for, he hoped for, looked for a city whose foundation and architect is God. That's what I'm talking about, this holy dissatisfaction. Holy meaning pure, sanctified. You're looking for God. But the idea of hope is the idea of looking for something you don't currently possess or have or own. For example, if you're somebody that hopes to one day be rich or have money so you can buy stuff, whatever the case is, the implication is that you currently don't have money to buy stuff, so you hope for it. If you hope to be married, it's because you currently aren't, right? If you hope to have kids, it's because you currently don't have kids and you hope to have kids. If you hope to have a house, it's because you currently are homeless. Get the idea? Hoping carries this connotation of looking for something that you currently don't possess. So faith, again, going back to this, is this foundation that is ultimately built on something that we look for that we currently don't ultimately possess. We may have it in part, We may have redemption of God for our souls and our lives, but we are looking forward to the day when all things will be redeemed. That's what we're looking for. We hope that, and that's what faith implies. The the third thing I want you to notice is this. Faith really is convinced of things that are not seen with the eyes. That's what faith is. There is an element where you're convinced. Faith leads to this conviction that you have even though you can't see the things that are there right in front of you. That's the idea. Um, and so, here's, here's what he says. I'll just read this. Verse 1, he says this, the second part of verse 1. Now, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Verse 3, jumps on. The reason why, I'll, I'll tell you why I think these two verses are connected in a second here. And what connects them. It says, by faith, we understand. Word understand can also mean perceive that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The word that's used there in my ESV for conviction, it's kind of an interesting word. It's, it's a very difficult word to translate into the English. reason why is because this particular word appears nowhere else in the entire New Testament, Greek, at all. So this makes it very tough for translators. When they're trying to translate things, they look for common words, And then they like to look for the way those words appear in other uh, passages to try to get a better understanding, more fuller, richer understanding of how that word is used. This particular word that's translated conviction appears nowhere else in the entire New Testament. So really all that you're left with is to borrow that word, to look at the way that word is used in secular culture, society, maybe in Greek texts, maybe by Plato or Aristotle or some of the other writers of the day, to try to understand how this particular word was used. Now, the way this word is translated, oftentimes, it can be used, this idea of um, conviction or proof or evidence. 
And so that's one of the reasons why I think it's translated here in the ESV as conviction. It's the conviction of things or evidence of things or this idea that there's something there, proof of something or body of evidence, body of proof that's there to kind of help you to understand. So he says faith is this body of evidence or this conviction of things not seen. Now, what I think the author is actually pointing to ultimately is that when we talk about having confidence in what we don't see, in the particular case of the writer of Hebrews, he's he's talking about having confidence in Jesus. And what he means by that is not just simply Jesus as a sort of arbitrary figure that lived, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe not he was Jewish, maybe, maybe not he lived in Israel. But the reality is, is the emphasis on the writer of Hebrews' heart is that Jesus actually existed. He was a historical figure that actually lived, moved, breathed, worked, lived, did stuff on the planet, preached, healed people, talked. Um, I love it how everybody now turns off their cell phone. Good job. Good job. Um, isn't that always great? You get a reminder of that, and everybody else is like, I got to make sure mine's off here, so. Oh, good. That's okay. I got AT&T anyhow, so I'm certain it's not going to work. The point that I would make is this. The point that I would make is this, is that when he's talking about the evidence of Christ, He's pointing out the fact that Jesus speaks things, has spoken things, and he also did things. So in other words, there's two major bodies of evidence that the writer of Hebrews is pointing to. And in particular, one of those in just a moment that we'll look at. The two elements of evidence that he's pointing to are the words of Christ and the works of Christ. The words of Christ and the works of Christ. Now, we all have that person in our life, right, that guy or that girl, that no matter what they say to us, we just don't trust them. You know what I'm talking about? You know the person I'm talking about? Comes to you, they're like, listen, I promise you. I promise you. I'll do it. You're like, yeah, right. Um, I'm certain of that, that you won't do it, all right? That's, that's one thing I'm certain of. Because we can't take their words to the bank, all right? We just can't. They're not trustworthy. We can't have confidence in them because we just don't trust them, all right? Um, I'll give you an example. I, one of the things that we've been doing the past few weeks, I, we, me and my kids, them being out of school, we watch Beavers, Leave it to Beavers, like every night, two or three. It's awesome. We're like in season three. We love Leave it to Beaver, right? There's one character in there. I'm going to say his name, and all of you will be like, aha, yeah, Eddie Haskell, all right? Right? You, you think of him. He is not very trustworthy. He says something you automatically know is probably wrong. I mean, whatever he's going to say, it's definitely, you just can't, you cannot bank on it. In fact, if you take Eddie Haskell's advice, you'll probably end up getting into trouble. And that's the beaver that we watched last night. Beaver trusted Eddie Haskell. He ends up getting in trouble. So don't take the advice of Eddie Haskell, all right? We all have Eddie Haskells in our lives. We all have people in our lives that tell us something, and their words, and their works are incongruent. They don't sync up. They don't line up. They might say things, but their deeds actions and works are totally incongruent with what they say. Not so with God. Not so with Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, look, the words and the works of Jesus, we can take to the bank. We can absolutely take them to the bank. We can absolutely give our lives, devote our thoughts, give our hearts, devote our minds, everything that we are, every fiber of our being to the words and the works of Christ because we know that they're true. One of the elements in which he points to, and this is where it gets a little bit interesting to me as I was reading this. This is where verse 3 comes in. I'm going to skip verse 2. We'll come back to that in a second. 
But verse 3 comes in, and he now begins to talk about the creation. You notice what he says in verse 3. By faith, we understand, perceive, that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The reason why I think this is what the writer of Hebrews has in mind when he's talking about unseen things, because again, verse 1, he says this, now faith is the conviction of things that we don't see. So we have evidence of things that are not seen. Now some of us are maybe like, don't you need empirical evidence? Things that you can see, things that you can touch, things that are tangible to, to actually prove something. I was going to show you guys, put some in the slideshow, but I, I totally spaced it, wasn't able to. You know, you guys all seen those like optical illusions? You know, where you look at it for a second and you're like, there's a couple different pictures in there. Now think about it. There are those, I think to some degree, that's what he's talking about. There is another dimension of seeing things that oftentimes we're just not seeing them on the correct level. There's an initial level where you can see things, and there's another level in which you can see things. Well, you know, I, I like to use this as an example, but oftentimes like the Lord of the Rings, all right? And some of you are like, oh, yes, another Lord of the Rings quote. Yes. Some of you are like, again? Here's my point. I've talked with people before, they're like, I've never seen any significance whatsoever in Lord of the Rings. And then I just say, look, you've got to go back and look at it through this lens, and it'll all make sense. And they go back and they start thinking through, like, ah, oh, that totally makes sense. I see that. I can get that. I understand that. Because Tolkien wrote in such a way where there's different layers, different dimensions, different ways in which you sort of angle yourself to look at it, and then things begin to make sense in a, in a different level, a different way. And so here's his whole point, is that we know and trust in Jesus because of his words and works. One of the chiefest, most primary evidences of God's existence is his creation. The point is, Sometimes people might look at this verse and be like, yes, he's just going to slam evolution. I don't even think it's even on his mind. The writer of Hebrews is not thinking about an evolution, creation debate whatsoever at all. It's just not. Try to twist it to that. It's twisting the text, making it say something that's not. The purpose of even bringing this up was a little bit kind of questionable for me at first when I read this. I'm like, why would he start off talking about creation and then begin to look at more of a biographical layout of other people throughout the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. Why does he start with creation? I mean, why doesn't he start out with somebody else, like Adam or whatever? Why does he start with something that's sort of inanimate? And I think the reason for that is because the emphasis on this one little phrase that he quotes twice. Take a look at it again. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. That, that little phrase, not seen. And then verse 3, by faith we understand and we perceive that the universe was created by the word of God so that it was, so that what is seen was made out of that which is invisible. So the element here that I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to point out is the, the, the common denominator between the two verses is God actually creates things out of nothing. Only God can do that. We don't do that. That's what makes God unique. That's what separates God from all other gods. That's what makes God, God, over me. I, I, all I can do at best is assemble things. I can take pre-existing material and build something. Some of you are gifted builders, whatever, with anything. I mean, if you're whoever, you can take yarn and make something that's spectacular. If you take building materials like wood, or metal, you can make something phenomenal. You can take clay and carve it into something 
and sculpt it into something beautiful. But in every single case, you're taking already pre-existent material and arranging it in some way where there's now order. It's not what God did. God originally created all things from nothing. The writer of Hebrews is basically emphasizing this is because he's essentially saying, you wonder how great our God is? God needs nothing to do everything. God does not need a womb that's ready to give birth and fertile. He can actually take a 90-year-old grandma and create a baby. God doesn't need somebody who's got direction and knows exactly where he's going in this world. He can take someone like Moses, who's a cast-off, raise him up, and use him as the means to set the people of Israel free. You see what I'm saying? God, so you might look at your life and be like, you don't understand, Brian, the problem with my life is there's nothing going on. What you need to realize is that's exactly the stuff that God uses to make things. There's nothing. That's how great our God is. This is the emphasis of Hebrews chapter 11. So to point this out, he goes back to creation itself. He says, don't forget, Christian, how great our God is, that he created all things out of nothing. That's how great he is, how powerful he is, and how much you can trust him because he needs nothing to start with to make things right, to make things good. He can just do it out of nothing. I want to take you on a quick journey. We're going to take a look a little bit at this universe. I want you to just try to wrap your minds around it very quickly. We'll run through this very fast. First thing I want you to take a look at is basically our home. I'm going to call this kind of our basement. This is where we live. Obviously, this is our planet. We call this home. God created this. It's a big earth. It's not as big as really compared to other things that are out there. But for us, it's perfect. It's home. It definitely beats all the other options in our solar system. The next thing I want you to take a look at is this. This is our actual solar system. Our earth um, lives or is situated in what's, what you know, the scientists call a solar system. And what that means is it's the sun, and around the sun is a system of planets or other orbiting elements that are going around the sun, moving around the sun. We call it our solar system. This is uh, by no means um, proportionate in terms of length or size, but I think as far as like the, the size of the planets compared, I think it's somewhat close to some sort of proportion. So you can get the idea, all right? Third planet up is Earth, but take a look at that compared to the sun. I mean, you think about how big Earth is, like this is a big place, yes, but compared to the other things out there, it's very small. And actually, our sun is very small compared to other stars out there. So this is our solar system. This is our hood, all right? So take a look at the next slide. I want to show you this. Um, the next thing that we're going to move out from, from our Earth to our solar system is the next element. It's called uh, the, our galaxy. And the galaxy is this. It's this huge uh, body. Uh, composed of some believe between 80 to 200 billion stars, most of which are bigger than our sun. All right, I know this is kind of hard to kind of wrap your minds around this, to kind of think about this, but what I need you to think about is the way they measure this is not according to inches or centimeters. They actually do this according to what's called light years. Um, light travels at 186 miles per second, all right? So I want you to think about this. 186 miles per second. If you were to able, if you were able somehow to get onto the back of a light beam, all right, just kind of travel, hitchhike on a light beam, you can actually circle the Earth, circumference of the Earth in a second. That's how fast it is, all right? 
Now, they use light years so to measure how big this stuff is. So a galaxy, what you're looking at right now, this is kind of a, a, an amazing picture you can find online. Um, if you see in the lower left-hand corner on your side, it's, it's just kind of a little snapshot of this larger thumbnail of this beautiful night sky. What you're looking at is what's called the Milky Way. These are all the stars, not all the stars, but these stars are what's in what we call our galaxy. All right? So I'll show you the next slide to help you kind of understand what our galaxy looks like. This, this is the cluster of stars that we live in called our galaxy. All right? In this galaxy are, like I said, billions of other stars. See, some of us right now, we might be like, well, you know, I, I, I thought, I thought Earth should be at the center of all things, right? Um, in this galaxy, you don't want to be at the center of that, all right? It's, it's a little bit hot in the middle. You don't want to be in the center of that. And so the point is, is that oftentimes we think about things like this. We're like, I, aren't, shouldn't we be at the center of all this? You know, we're not even at the center of our own solar system. The sun is. We're not even at the center of this galaxy. I mean, our cul-de-sac is right down here, right? There's a little arrow pointing to where the sun's at. You obviously can't see the planets because they're so tiny in comparison to this. This is one galaxy. Scientists believe there's between 80 to 100 billion of these other galaxies throughout the known universe. We're talking, it's just the, the numbers are incalculable. The Bible actually says that God holds the universe in the span of his hand. He holds the universe in the span of his hand. Listen to this other verse right here. I love this because this is what he also says. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. He says, he marked off the heavens with a span. Psalm 147 says, he determines the number of stars and he gives to all of them their names. Do you know at the center of this galaxy right here, this big, humongous ball of fire it's sort of like the incubator. That's where new stars are being birthed. And every time, God's given another name. Another name. Another star. Another name. And this is, again, just one galaxy amidst billions of galaxies in the entire known universe. And all that simply means is we call it the foreseeable or, or uh, perceivable known universe, which means we don't, have, we don't have telescopes big enough, powerful enough to see everything. Do you know that if you go outside right now, or at nighttime, I should say, and you look up in the stars, the only stars you'll see are the ones that are in our galaxy. That's it. Just our galaxy. Not another galaxy. Just our galaxy. And our galaxy is just one of billions. This is amazing. And he's saying that God created all of this out of nothing. You want to know something that's even more profound? Aside from the fact that God created all things, take a look at the next slide. Is that God, the creator, entered into his creation. That's how profound this is. Jesus was historical. God enters into the story, his story. It's a story that he started. He started authoring it. He wrote the story. He also is the main player in the story. And his purposes are so that we, out of faith and confidence, would trust him. Not that we would be autonomous, individualistic beings trying to map out, carve out our own type of life and existence. I think one of the reasons why we get to look at stars and be absolutely amazed is because one of the things that keeps constantly speaking back to us over and over and over again, the uniform message that the universe speaks to us is God is big and you're not. That's the message. That's the message of the universe. It's to point out 
that we are not as big as we think we are, but our God is bigger than we can imagine. That's how big our God is. And he wants to involve himself in our lives to such a degree that he entered into the world and subjected himself to the worst evil that human hands could have ever done. I love this picture. This is painted by Rembrandt. Some of you might know about it. He actually paints a self-portrait of himself in there. So say, that was me. Killing my creator. In need of grace. Guys, the greatest reality of the universe, the greatest story is not that God created all things. That's great. It's profound. It's so big. The more we study it, the more absolutely blown away we are. But the greatest reality is that God wants to be in relationship intimately with his creation. So much so that the maker became one of us. That's the story. And the reality that he wants us to see is that he can be trusted because he's so great, so powerful. The last thing I want to point out is this. Faith is ultimately what identifies us as God's people. Verse 2 says this. For by it the people of old received their commendation. So here's what he's done. He's setting the stage for the rest of Hebrews 11. He's saying, hey, by it, all these people we're going to look at right now. Not right now, but in the weeks to come. Of old. All these people of old have been commended. The word commend in the actual Greek is martyrio. We get the English word martyr from, which literally also is translated in other ways, witness. Each one of these guys testify. They're witnesses, and they receive this commendation by God because they have confidence in God. In other words, they're in Hebrews 11 because they trusted God. Literally, believers are people of faith. They trust God. The problem with, that was going on in the Hebrews day, first century, was these people had originally come to faith in Christ. They trusted Jesus. And remember, they're Jewish. So they came out of this Hebraic system of ordinances and laws and things of that nature. And what had happened was when they first trusted Christ, they lived in a culture and a society that was becoming more and more aggressive against them. And so the temptation was to actually uh, tone down Jesus and pull back away from Jesus to kind of slip back into the Judaism of the day. And what had happened was it was sort of this idea where they're pushing away from Jesus and the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, don't, don't do that. Don't walk away from Christ. Don't you know that Jesus ultimately is everything? He's the main point of the entire story of God. To walk away from Jesus would be to walk away from the whole plan that God's establishing and bringing forth. Don't walk away from Jesus. And his whole point is that because the trials are hard, because things are difficult for them, they want to walk away. I know the reality is, is that none of you guys can associate with that or relate to that because that was just for a period back then when people really suffered, right? And the reality is that's all of us. We all have suffering. We all have moments and periods in our lives where we doubt and we question and we wonder, where's God? Where we kind of look at things that are in our lives and we're like, God, where are you? How come you're not showing up? How come you're not activating yourself in my life? How come I don't have... You know, things that I'm really longing for in my life isn't a good thing to want to be married. How come I don't have a wife yet? God isn't a good thing to want to have children. How come I don't have children? God isn't a good thing to have a job so I can provide for my family. How come I don't have a job? Aren't these good things? And the answer is yes. But at the end of the day, it's very easy 
through temptations of trial and difficulty to pull away from God, to not trust God, to distrust Him. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't pull away from who God is. Don't pull away and inadvertently turn your back on the beauty and the greatness and the profound majesty of God. You may not understand what He's doing. You may not be fully aware of all of His knowledge, His intricate ways of doing things. But what God is always doing is He's always, the way that one songwriter wrote it, He's riding upon the storm. God's not affected by the storm. He's on top of the storm. And He's moving in the storm. He's with us. That's what the message of the cross teaches us, is that God is not just saying, here, here's a couple pithy statements to help you get through life's tough problems. It's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God is Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us, with you in the suffering, with you in the trial. Taking things that look like they aren't or they shouldn't be and transforming them to things that can be. Taking wombs like Sarah that is barren, 90 years old, and giving her a baby. Taking lives that just shouldn't be Change and God changing them. That is what the message of the gospel implies. And it's all because he's a great God. He's a big God. He's a powerful God. And the people who trust God are people who recognize that God's a great God. This is why I want to finish this right here. In Hebrews chapter 10, says this, verse 32, But recall the former days from when you were enlightened, that you endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who are so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you, yourselves that you had a better possession and a more abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which is in great reward. His whole point is that as he's writing to this group of people, he's like, look, I know you guys have gone through hard times. I know life has been tough. I know it's been difficult. I know there's been more questions than there's ever been answers. But the message that come from the words and the works of God from the very beginning, when he created all things out of nothing, is that he's a great God. That he alone is a great God. I want to finish with this. I'm going to have the worship team come on up and wrap this up. Take a look at this last verse. I think I have it up on the screen. Peter writes, one of Jesus' good friends, and he again writes to a group of Christians that are suffering through similar trials and tribulations and hardships, and here's what he says. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, and so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise, glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You know what I love about this? He's speaking to the present. He's like, look, you guys never saw Jesus. You didn't see him. You weren't there at the cross. You weren't there when he rose again from the dead. You didn't see him ascend into heaven. All this is secondhand information to you. You're hearing it from us or from somebody who heard it from us. 
So for you guys, you have no other option but to believe and to have confidence in what we say. Then he adds this other statement. He's all, you currently don't see God. Because I look at this in my life, my own life. I mean, how many times have any of us in this room have looked at our lives and we've asked that question, God, where are you? Where are you? I don't see you currently. That's what he writes to this group of people. He's like, you, you guys don't see him, but you believe in him. You didn't see him, but you love him. Faith is a sense of trusting in what God did, starting from the creation, through the cross, and what God will do. Bringing these two elements together in the present and walking in the confident assurance that God's words can be taken to the bank. We can be trusted in. That's why Peter says, because of this, we're filled with inexpressible joy and full of glory. Does that describe you today? And what I don't mean is I don't mean sort of this like cheesy Christian horrible mentality that sort of slaps a smile on your face, sings praise songs, listens to Michael W. Smith, and just acts as if everything's great. Not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about somehow living out some sort of cheesy existence. It's just simple hypocrisy. But what I am talking about is a confidence that even though you don't feel God, even though you don't feel good, even though your life is always speaking contrary to what God promises and you don't feel like loving God in your heart you cry out to him you're like God I don't feel like worshiping you but I want to I don't feel like trusting you but I desperately desire to God I'm having a hard time believing and trusting your word but I know it's true and I want it to be real in my life you know that those are prayers of faith God doesn't want hypocrisy. He already knows your heart. You're not fooling anybody. You might fool me. You might fool the rest of us. But it doesn't fool God. God wants transparency and honesty that we cry out to him. That's what he wants. We're going to respond. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to have an opportunity just to give our praise to God. We're also going to have an opportunity to partake of communion. We partake of communion, again, by faith. We trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, but we also trust in a future state of glory where we will sit down with King Jesus and have an amazing meal with him. So as we partake of the communion, we remember the fact that Jesus died for me and I lived that experience out. We also remember the fact that one day we're going to sit down with him in his kingdom. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to God. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. It's a way for us to give back joyfully to God. If you a member of this church, you consider us your family and give back joyfully to God. And maybe some of us here are just going to confess and repent from sin. Repent from unbelief. Turn from unbelief, disbelief, and turn to the living God who has proven himself in word and in works that is trustworthy. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Lord, I ask you right now that anything that I've said that did not properly represent you, that did not properly reflect you, that placed emphases on things that should not have been emphasized. Lord, I ask you right now, please forgive me. And God, I ask you as well that you would help us just to have a big vision, big picture of you, and that the worship we sing, the songs that we sing, 
the sin that we confess, the prayers that we pray, would be prayers prayed to you based upon you being a big God, a great God, a mighty God, who's actually mighty to save. We give joyfully, we confess sin gladly, we trust you with all of our heart, even though it may be painful. 